welcome to The Manifest, a podcast all about package management. My name's Alex Pounds. And I'm Andrew Nesbitt. And together we're exploring the technical details of package management, the stories and the histories of various projects and the communities around them too. Today we're joined by Chris Lamb, a director of both the Open Source Initiative and Software in the Public Interest. Previously a Debian project leader and a core developer of the Reproducible Build project. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Chris, you do a lot of open source work and have a long history in the open source community. But how did you first get into technology? How did you get into this field? I first got into this field via a friend of my mum's. My mum was organizing a group in the local area. And one of the people who was joining that group was a um, lecturer at a university. They were throwing away a whole bunch of old equipment and were taking it to the local waste disposal yard. On the way there, he accidentally had a car accident and this old machine went through his front windscreen into a field. Being a sort of hacker type, he thought, well, you know, let's take it home and see whether it still works. And as it did, he thought he couldn't really throw it out after that as it added some extra weight to it in a way. Anyway, I ended up with this machine and it was was an extremely old 8088 Intel machine. And I had that when I was about seven or eight. But it wasn't very useful for programming or games or anything whatsoever. It was just a bizarre machine and things like that. I really got into technology in a much bigger way throughout sixth form and then in university. First through Slackware Linux and then very quickly into Debian. Because when I tried to install a Red Hat set of CDs that I bought from the Linux Emporium in the UK... It said I needed 12 megabytes of RAM, but I only had 8 megabytes in my machine at the moment. And were you studying computer science or was technology and programming and hacking around with this stuff like a side project? By that time, it was very much a side and full time project, you know, 150% time. I had got into programming in a bigger way throughout sixth form. So it was the obvious logical choice to study that at university. Did you start contributing to open source during university or did that come afterward? It did. It started very slowly. I remember my first patch to Debian was perhaps in Christmas 2005. I sent a patch for a particular piece of music software I was using at the time. It was a very small change to a small Python script. I was so encouraged by the response that it just made me want to contribute more and learn more about this community and things like that. It stopped software being handed out from on high, if you see what I mean, like being handed to you already preformed to something that you could take control of yourself or at least have a part in saying how it ran on your machine. And, you know, you just became a lot more invested emotionally in the whole um, computing experience from that point on. Oh, I have all kinds of questions related to your background, especially trying to compare it to my experience of computer science at university, which was very Windows centric. Did you find there was a lot of open source and Linux whilst you were at university or was this dabbling to escape the world of Windows? It was very much both, actually. The university um, had a bunch of Sun machines. So whilst it wasn't Linux per se, there was a lot of Unix-y type things. So it was already in that side of the, on that side of the spectrum. The machines in the university labs were all running some variant of Red Hat, I think later Fedora. Um, And that certainly contributed to just using Linux a lot more and and just making that the default operating system on all my machines from 
at least the second year of university. Perhaps only rebooting into Windows to play the odd game on things like that, but eventually that died out as my machines got too old to play any games of any interest. So it sounds like Chris and I had a pretty similar path into the world of programming as when I was in school, I was also playing around with some of the early Linux distros. And my university also had a whole bunch of Solaris machines, which uh, were a lot of fun to play with. All the computer science students got a account on this machine that was called Raptor. And everyone had like a, a little mailbox and some space and we could log into it remotely and use that. Oh, I'm jealous now. Well, so my university degree was in robotics rather than computer science and had a small amount of computer science modules in it. Mostly it was just mathematics, mathematics of analog and digital electronics and mechanics and everything else related to like how robots actually work rather than learning what to do with them, which was a little disappointing. But the robots that we had uh, access to were entirely controlled from windows so that was kind of limiting yeah i don't know what the electronic students ended up doing and um, i think a lot of the computer science bits like you could kind of get as much unix as you wanted basically in the if you really were interested in this and i was and you could play around on this and do a lot of work and have screen sessions running on uh, raptor for your irc and things like that but a lot of other people just treated it as a samba share that you would mount and then you could put your homework assignments in the correct place to submit them and do that through the windows computer labs Anyway, reminiscences aside, let us return to the topic of Debian and Chris's open source contributions. So, Chris, you started off by sending patches over to this bit of music software. And a big part of your open source contribution in history has been with the Debian project itself. And Debian takes other open source software and packages them up and makes them available as a Linux distribution. So how did you start getting involved with that process? How did you go from contributing to open source tools to this open source distribution? Straight from the beginning, actually, the patch I sent regarding the music software was sent via Debian because it was a sort of Debian-specific kind of issue at the time. But it just seemed only logical that as I was receiving the software through Debian, then an issue with the software or updates to software within the Debian distribution would just have to be done there. The upstream projects occupied a different space and contributing to each one would require a little bit of investment. I just ended up spending a little bit more time on the, on the, on the Debian point of view. Could you tell us how package management in Debian works, both on a technical side and as an organization? The technical side is, on the face of it, quite straightforward. We, quote-unquote, just take software from upstream and compile it, perhaps applying some universal build flags and quality assurance on top of the piece of software, validating that it doesn't do anything silly like install things directly to your home directory or things like that. And then that gets shipped out through a huge amount of infrastructure to end users via, you know, Depackage, apt, and things like that, all tools that I guess most listeners to this podcast are aware of. There's a bunch of stuff behind the scenes. For example, uh, within Debian, we do releases every 18 months or so. There's a release team that manages the packages transitioning from what we call the unstable distribution, which is sort of what you might call the rolling release, 
to what's called the testing distribution, which is the staging area for the upcoming next stable release of Debian. There are other things on the technical side as well, such as the Debian Archive Kit. And this is a quite complicated piece of software that manages all the varying architectures. It also manages what files have been superseded. For example, if you keep uploading new versions of a piece of software, the old versions don't require archiving and mirroring across the entire world. The Debian Archive Kit is responsible for doing all that. Plus a, a myriad things when you get into the finer details of apps and deb package management across the thing. On a social point of view, Debian has quite an interesting method of doing package management. In the very, very, very early days of Debian, I mean in the first perhaps six months, there was no concept of a maintainer owning a particular area of a package. That was added fairly early on in the initial stages of Debian due to one particular package in particular having a sort of race condition across multiple people working on it. That tradition has, has somewhat held until the last few years. So what you would have is a particular package or a particular software area would have a paper owner, if you see what I mean. So, oh yes, that particular chap or lady is managing this screensaver software or, oh, this person is actually the maintainer for this particular database server and things like that. This um, is very useful because you have a sole point of contact for any problems with that particular package. For example, the bug reports will go to them. And they're typically well placed to fix the issues because they know the history of that piece of software. They're perhaps invested in that software. Maybe they're the upstream developer for that piece of software. This idea of package ownership has loosened in the past few years with a lot more emphasis on team maintainer of packages. Obviously, it clearly reduces the bus factor. And this also starts to match other movements generally in free software where you don't have sort of single owners because it's not considered to be best practice for a number of personal and social reasons and things like that. I'm quite interested in how someone becomes a owner of one of these areas or joins one of the teams to level up to become a maintainer of a Debian package or multiple packages. In the case of teams, it's quite straightforward. Often it's just a case of requesting to join a team. And because all um, packages are reviewed before upload, you may be given commit rights fairly quickly. For the case of becoming the actual maintainer of a singular piece of software, say it's small enough to not necessarily require a team, but say a, just a screensaver kind of application. To become the maintainer of that, often that will require the existing maintainer to step down or to perhaps orphan the package and then you then adopt the package and you make a special upload saying, oh, I'm now the maintainer of this particular package and ongoing I'll be quasi-responsible for uploading new versions and you know, fixing any bugs that arise and being also responsible for any security bugs that come in as well. So that process of committing to the repository, is that committing in the kind of traditional source version control commit or is that something that's more like putting into a specific Debian system? There's actually no Debian-specific system for this. We in Debian try to be fairly open to almost all workflows. So there is no canonical location for all version control packages in Debian. That is changing in the past few years, and there certainly moves towards saying all packages might be in Git. There's also a, a sort of parallel push towards a system called dgit, which does speak to a number of the sort of centralized-ish 
sense of, oh, this is where all history for a package and this is where the package is maintained and things like that. But um, as there's no um, location for, oh, this is where the package is canonically, well, one is free to use CVS to maintain the package locally. The abstraction layer is when you do the upload, you're basically uploading a source package. However you create that source package is entirely up to you. This quite flexible approach doesn't force people into particular workflows. And that's one thing that's particularly common in Debian, that your workflow is not necessarily my workflow and things like that. And so that upload process, is that something that you'd run from the command line or would be triggered from a CI system? What's the process of that going from the source control to being available to the end users? There's quite a few steps in that. The first one is that you would build the package locally and then you would sign your build of it. So you would take your screensaver software out of your whatever version control system you were using. You would then build it on your own machine and then you would GPG sign the result of that and upload the signature as well as the package to the Debian archive kit. And that would handle checking whether that um, signature was valid and also do a bunch of whole fail-safes, uh, checking that you know, you've uploaded a version that's newer than the existing version. Otherwise, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. The Debian archive kit then takes over. From then on, it's, it's an entirely automated process. So if your package is designed for multiple architectures, it will be then sent to what's called the build daemons. And so this will mean your um, build will be run on you know, S390, PowerPC, various variants of ARM and things like that, as well as the more vanilla i386, AMD64, etc., etc. architectures. The screensaver example is quite an interesting one because I know of at least one screensaver package where in Debian, the original maintainer of this software actually asked Debian, please stop distributing this because the version that's being distributed was really out of date and he kept getting bug reports for this code that had been fixed for years. So how does Debian balance these two things, the wishes of the original development team and the people who are packaging it for distribution within Debian? Yes, it's quite an interesting thing. I mean, if you just want to talk legalities, then you get kind of a, a rather weak argument because it's all free software, so Debian can sort of do what it likes. There might be restrictions about how much they could change without changing the name of the package. But Debian is always free in a sort of free software sense to distribute whatever it likes. However, that's not particularly friendly to anyone, really, is it? I mean, that's not the end of the argument. And this delicate balance is yet to be found. If it's clearly a case of neglect or lack of energy or time on behalf of a maintainer, that's clearly one thing. You know, maybe someone else can come along and adopt the package to get a newer upstream version that does resolve some of these issues that perhaps the upstream maintainer has been bugged about. That's a, yeah, particularly tricky when you have maintainers that are not the um, upstream developers. I guess the equivalent in the language package manager world doesn't become so much of a problem because there is not this idea of packaging up a whole repository ready for a release and then being presented as kind of a collection of packages that are available as like here is a semi-curated set of software. Do you think that having kind of Debian as both a 
collection of pieces of infrastructure as well as the end product adds to that level of difficulty of making those decisions. Absolutely, yeah. It's a, a Debian system as a whole. So you don't have these small individual bite-sized components, which are pretty discreet in how they work. So, for example, oh, if this particular version over here is this variant of this piece of software, it doesn't necessarily integrate well with this one over here. And so, therefore, some changes and some deviations from upstream may be necessary to ensure a good user and developer experience for the end user of a Debian system. And would you say that if you were to prioritize things that go into decision making, that the Debian system as a whole is kind of the highest priority? I would certainly say it had a higher priority because getting a well-integrated system is the entire point of an operating system. If one wanted to just use the upstream version directly, one is always free to do that kind of thing. Uh, you mentioned free software. I guess there's different levels and different repositories for Debian packages, but for official Debian repositories, do you have license restrictions? Absolutely, yeah. The Debian system is entirely free software. That means it follows the Debian free software guidelines that relate to the Free Software Foundation and GNU systems for freedoms. You know, for example, the, the freedom to redistribute copies and to make changes, etc., etc. The distinction might be is that um, as a separate part to the Debian system, we have what's called the non-free section. And this will typically include things like drivers that we don't have the original source code for, or there are no rights to for redistribution of that particular piece of software. But um, just to clarify, those aren't part of the Debian system. They are adjacent. They are provided only as a, ooh, um, I don't even want to say the word convenience because it's not really convenient to use them. But they're often just provided just to get your system up and running a sort of somewhat regrettable penance, maybe, for using an almost entirely free software machine. Debian's package management is built using software called dpackage and apt. And other distributions, most notably Ubuntu, are also using these tools to power their package management. Do those other distros use Debian packages for that? Or do they just use the same infrastructure and software but have a completely separate set of maintainers? Yes and no to all of those questions. Take Ubuntu, for example, whilst I may get some of the details mixed up. Ubuntu rebuild all of their packages. So the deb files that end up on an Ubuntu system are not literally the debs that were built by the Debian system. They do sort of full archive rebuilds and they ship those out to their users. With respect to what the packages actually are or their literal source packages, they're based on the Debian packages in Debian. They're often Ubuntu-specific packages on top and there may be software that Ubuntu removes and also um, software that Ubuntu adds to the Debian distribution to make up their own Ubuntu distribution, for example. What makes Ubuntu rebuild all of the software? I believe Ubuntu rebuild their software for a number of reasons. One, so they can guarantee that it does rebuild. Two, they may have different compiler flags to rebuild some things. They may be using newer versions of compilers and things like that. And as they have a different tool chain, rebuilding just makes sense. It perhaps also makes sense from a security point of view, and just so they're a little bit more in control about what happens. So, for example, if a package needs a rebuild, they've obviously got the infrastructure to do that because they're rebuilding it anyway. In my mind, apt-get and dpackage are some of the 
oldest and most reliable bits of package management software. I remember having my mind blown the first time I installed Debian because Dpackage and apt would do all the dependency resolution for me at the time when I played around with various Red Hat distros. If I had an RPM that I wanted to install, I would have to track down its dependencies and install them by hand myself. And Dpackage just took care of that all for me. Is my perception accurate? Is Dpackage something that was written years ago and has mostly just worked since then with like maybe minor tweaks here and then? Or has it been torn down and rebuilt a number of times? And as an end user, I've never seen that. The majority of the code has never really been completely overhauled in, in the sense of what you mean. There was never any huge re, you know, rewrite from scratch of Dpackage. However, it did supersede, I believe, a previous incarnation. I believe it was called Deity. But this is getting back many, many decades now and things like that. There's obviously been a huge number of improvements, enhancements, different format changes within Dpackage itself, using internal databases instead of text files and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's not to say that it's stagnant at all and it's not moving quite fast. It has quite active development. And it's quite responsive to new ideas. And it perhaps just looks like it never changes because, of course, people want to keep the same interfaces. It just because scripts would break them. Well, you break people, let alone scripts. So, yeah, it's um, it may have the same, you know, surface. Dpackage-i probably worked the same 20 years ago today, but it's what it actually does under the hood may be really quite different. So what kind of under-the-hood decisions were made by the Dpackage authors that they got so very right? As not a Dpackage maintainer, I probably can't speak to that. A lot of them were thinking very upfront about how to safely write to the file system or to do safe changes. Perhaps a lot of um, what we might call whiteboard sessions were happening, discussions around, no, no, so if a package installs, what does installed means? What if there's post-installation scripts what if they fail? What happens if they need to be rolled back? And you very quickly get it into a huge state space explosion in this area. And working out exactly how that works is key to making a robust system. So, for example, if a package fails to install, you don't have a sort of broken Debian system underneath you that, you know, with other systems, I've often just reinstalled because I'd broken something in a way that I had no idea how to fix. And the package manager had no idea how to fix and it would just be easier to rebuild. We see that jokingly quite a lot in NPM where people will just say, oh, if something's gone wrong, just blast away your node modules folder and reinstall from scratch because it just gets itself in a state that the package manager can't tell what the state is in. And if a post install script doesn't complete successfully, it will just bail <laughs> often. I wonder if... There are things that language package managers can learn from Debian that maybe aren't as obvious. I think there are a few. The one that's coming to mind right now is the idea of idempotency. So the idea that if you run a particular operation twice, it doesn't break it the second time, if you see what I mean. Um, this usually has the other property whereby if the running of a particular process, you know, I'm packing a piece of software and running a post-installation script. If that's indepotent, then if it was interrupted halfway through and then it was just simply reran, 
and then the second one finished successfully, then the system would be in a known good state at the end. It's these kind of core philosophical concepts that are often neglected when trying to build somewhat robust systems. And every time I've used those ideas elsewhere in my programming, I've ended up with a much more robust system or tools that just didn't seem to break as often as other ones I had written. You mentioned a little earlier about rolling releases and I was reading some comment thread somewhere from someone who was a fan of Arch and he mentioned that he was a fan of the rolling release approach that Arch takes and I wasn't quite sure what the difference was. Could you go into that a little bit? I think what people mean by a rolling release means that, for example, it's very responsive to new upstream versions. So, for example, if there's a new version of the GNOME desktop environment on a Monday, say that was released, then it would be available in your distribution at least by the end of the week. This is extremely nice because you're using newer stuff. It's shinier. It might be faster. It also serves to make you contribute more. For example, if you find a bug in the latest version, you can often fix it and get into the next version. And that short iteration cycle is much better than something where you're using something slightly older where your bug may already have been fixed six months ago and things like that. So that's what people mean by rolling in general. Debian doesn't have an explicitly rolling distribution. The main releases of Debian are what we call Debian stable. So the current stable release is the term we will use. And that's currently nicknamed Buster. This gets frozen every 18 months and we test it heavily. We do all sorts of extra tests about a release. And then we release that and it can serve as an extremely solid base for all manner of systems, but particularly server systems where do you really want to be installing the very latest version of Redis? Way maybe, maybe not. Maybe you just want to get some work done. Maybe you're just trying to ship your... Uh, particular widget out the door you know you don't you don't want to be bothered with that every single week or have uncertainty and risk around random upgrades happening however debian does have what's called the unstable distribution and that's named not necessarily in a sense of the software itself is unstable it's just to put it at odds with the so-called stable distribution and stable in this sense really means the software itself on your machine is stable with respect to time so if you run your updates every day you don't get a new version randomly of GNOME and you know your desktop is completely changed underneath you because that may not be what you want and things like that. I think Redis is an interesting example because I spend most of my time working as a web developer and when Redis releases a new version, they often have all kinds of cool new features and data structures and things that you can do in the new version that you couldn't do before. And I do want to get in there and get my hands dirty and start exploring those new facilities. So it's great that it's available in the unstable distribution. And obviously that will over time come back into the stable distribution. But in general, I think these days people are more likely to use something like Docker to update their own kind of custom system images. And then they can pull those extra dependencies into those things in a reproducible way and in a way almost do an end run around the actual system distributions have you seen that change from your involvement in debian or is that just a fluke of my own perspective i don't think that's a complete fluke of your own perspective that's certainly something that's very 
common these days in, in web development. If one is using Docker anyway for deployment, it can often make sense to, to use it for these other slightly different things as well. But if you don't mind, you somewhat fell into my trap because I use Redis as a great example here. Debian can is, I'll, I'm, I'm certainly biased, but it's all things to all people. So, for example, you can choose the stable version, which has five, six, seven, maybe even almost 10 years of security updates for, which is a huge boon if you don't necessarily want the latest and greatest shiny features. You just want something solid and you don't want to care about it. However, we do have what's called the backports repositories. So this lets you trivially, almost easier than Docker, uh, and certainly integrates nicer with the rest of your system. It almost trivially lets you use the latest and greatest versions of software on the stable distribution. So you have the best of both worlds. So you have an entirely stable server system, but you still get the magic extra new cool data structures that the latest Redis 6 or whatever offers you and things like that. And that also means you don't have to use Docker, you don't have to use these sort of external repositories because the backports packages will integrate extremely well into your Debian system as if you were using the stable version. So um, you, you can't lose, basically. Redis also has that other interesting element that you are kind of involved in where they decided to relicense some of their extensions from being free software to different let's use the word different licenses. Was that something that then you needed to fork and continue under the existing license so that it could continue to exist in the Debian world? Maybe I should, we should um, let Chris explain that rather than me just assume people know what I'm talking about. Sure. Redis, the server itself, is either BSD or MIT license, I can't remember which, but it's quite a liberal license and remains so and has not changed. So let's be clear about that. But it does have an extension stroke module system whereby you can install third-party modules into Redis where upstream is reticent to include things directly. So this is, for example, advanced text search and stemming support and things like that. Redis Labs, who maintain a bunch of modules for Redis itself. A little while ago, we licensed some of their modules from free software licenses to non-free licenses. And this immediately meant that Debian could no longer ship these modules because we only ship free software to users. However, one could make a fork of the software prior to its relicensing, and that's exactly what I did with a small community of other people interested in keeping these pieces of software in mainstream distributions. And did you feel any pushback on that, or was that mostly ignored from Redis Labs's point of view? Well, when you said pushback, I got almost got the opposite pushback from the free software community in general. People were extremely negative on the relicensing of it, whilst people might have hummed and hawed about open source sustainability and things like that. The idea of relicensing and essentially closing a, a piece of software and restricting people's use of it, it did not sit well with 99.999% of anyone I spoke to on this issue. Redis Labs themselves got a little cold feet afterwards, but I will, yeah. Andrew, I don't know what your perspective is on this, as you are someone who has tried very hard to build a number of sustainable open source businesses. And that was really kind of the driving force of Redis Labs' decision to try to relicense those modules. 
Yes, but one big difference is that I have not attempted to build a business selling open source components, only producing open source applications. I think especially raising venture capital to produce open source components is inherently unsustainable if you're expecting to publish something under a free software license especially a permissive free software license you are essentially putting it into the public domain how you then expect to fit any kind of restrictions around that to be able to force someone to pay for something doesn't feel like a long-term way of building a business without needing to start to do some stuff that doesn't really fit with the open source community the natural approach is to push then towards support and things that Red Hat have shown works quite well, but doesn't work for lots of people doing it on small scales. It really requires a very large organization that can sell into some other very large uh, organizations as customers. So I can't see how that would work while still being licensed in that way. And that is one big question that continues to loom is, Like, how do you fund development? You're not funding the existence of the software. Once it's been written, it can be copied for zero cost. Like there's no restrictions there. There's no, no one loses anything. All you're really talking about is funding the attention of the developers on an ongoing basis. And I guess the the Debian project itself actually has become sustainable and has found ways of funding the work involved in curating a set of systems together did you want to talk a little bit about that chris sure i mean one way of looking at the way debian has become sustainable is that it's essentially all volunteers whilst a number of developers will have time and energy to invest into debian via their employers you know because the employer wants a particular thing being done or it's in their interest and keep a particular say architecture in debian itself there's not a sort of top-down approach to it so this sort of bottom-up structure of debian means that it doesn't have high costs. I mean, certainly we use a lot of server space and annual conferences. They are obviously aren't cheap and things like that. But we don't require that much funds from a relative point of view to maintain the distribution. Obviously, we require a lot of goodwill and a lot of time and energy and things like that. But this is often volunteer-led work or volunteer-led work in the context of a employer-employee relationship. Let's switch gears as we've talked a lot about Debian and one of the other key focuses of your current open source work is on the Reproducible Builds project. So what is the Reproducible Builds project and why is it important? So the Reproducible Builds project is becoming more and more important as we hit the end of this decade. So whilst anyone can download and inspect the source code or free software for backdoors uh, or malicious flaws in general. Most software is distributed to end users systems as pre-compiled binaries. So, and so the motivation behind the reproducible builds effort and project is to ensure that zero changes have been introduced in between the source code and when you get the binary. Does the binary that you're running correspond to the source code? Because if you can't guarantee that, then you have no idea whether, for example, the compile farm has been compromised. You have no idea whether your machine has been compromised and your compiler is sneaking in extra things behind your back and things like that. 
And this is an incredibly important area of concern because, for example, if a malicious actor can compromise a build farm or some sort of build system in that respect, the number of machines they can attack is almost uh, out of this world. I mean, if I targeted you directly, yeah, maybe I could get into your system. But perhaps with the same amount of effort or only a marginal amount more, if I compromise, say, the Debian build system, then the number of machines I could potentially have access to via introducing rootkits and things like that would be huge. And so reproducible builds um, is a way of detecting whether these sort of intrusions have happened and therefore prevent them happening in the first place. And how did it get started? The idea of a reproducible build from this point of view has been around for well, at least one decade. You see other projects that even from the, the 80s, maybe the 70s, using the term or use, certainly using the concepts, jumping on a bit and having a reproducible build is a great benefit from a QA and technical perspective. For example, if you you compile your piece of software and you compile it again and you get the exact same result. It means that when you make tiny changes to your source code, you only get tiny changes in the binary, which is great A for literally if you were then going to send it out to 10 million machines, the delta between the old version and the new version is incredibly tiny, but it also makes it much easier to audit any changes. Let's say you're pushing out some new code, low level code to a uh, nuclear power reactor you would make a change to the source code and of course that would be vetted by 10,000 million people or whatever and they would say yes this is a change we definitely want we want to change that one to a two but if you then compiled that piece of software if that resulted in a huge number of changes in the binary that you're about to install on this nuclear reactor that might make you a little bit nervous but however if you have a reproducible build in a normal sense often you would just see a one bit change between a 1 and a 2 in the object code that you're about to distribute to your nuclear reactor. So that's obviously a great thing. You could just go and inspect and be like, yep, yeah, I'm pretty confident I can put my name to this and tick it off. So, yeah. So how does it work? Reproducible Builds works by promising that identical results are always generated from a given source. Let's give you a concrete example. You download Nginx version 1.0.2 and you compile it yourself and then you ask a number of your friends or trusted actors and things like that to also compile it themselves. And the idea is that if every time you build this piece of software, you get the same result, if enough multiple third parties can come to a consensus on what the output of that should be, you know, using a, a checksum or something like that, you can be reasonably sure that no one's machine has been compromised with a sort of backdoor that's inserting extra things into the compilation process. Because in this case, either no one has been compromised or all 20 of your friends have been compromised at once with the same vulnerability and things like that. And um, when we say 20 of my friends are going to compile the software, is our like hypothetical person in this uh, example an end user or is this a developer of Nginx? There'll be a number of actors. I don't suspect that many end users will be recompiling it themselves. I mean, most people are installing pre-compiled versions anyway. But often it'll be developers and maybe it could be um, other developer friends of yourself. But it could be organizations that you trust in general. So you could just say, oh, well, if Debian rebuilt this piece of software and they get X and another organization also had what we might call a rebuilder rebuilding their software packages, you can see that if you have enough of these actors acting independently of each other, 
with you know their own distinct infrastructure and distinct goals and distinct locations and legal jurisdictions then you could start to quickly come to a sort of quite high level of confidence that checks on ABCDE is what one should be getting and that probably is not the compromise build and therefore it is safe to install on your local machine. That sounds like uh, the kind of thing that someone would recommend you put a blockchain in. Blockchains are often brought up in this context. Personally, I haven't really researched whether a blockchain would be perfect for this. But um, if we just need a consensus on whether builds are in agreement, we don't necessarily need a ledger that can be unaltered back in the past. Yeah, I mean, everyone suggests putting everything on a blockchain these days. The area that I recently looked into that's kind of tangentially related is around transparency logs, particularly certificate transparency logs for web browsers and SSL certificates for websites, which feels like a similar kind of approach would be doable for binaries. And in fact, when I was researching, Mozilla had done an experiment they called the binary transparency logs. And they actually used the certificate transparency logs infrastructure uh, and started publishing the signatures of the binaries that were published by Mozilla two certificate transparency logs that were hosted by Google and others. So then people could confirm the checksum of Firefox is this, and these three organizations all agree, and you can check that their agreement was published on a particular date, and it's stored in a Merkle tree, so they can't go and then change their opinion of that at a later date uh, without other people being able to easily detect that. But it feels like an area that could easily be experimented in and introduce more security problems potentially if it was not very carefully done than just using human levels of trust rather than trying to automate all of the trust into just a broad global consensus. Absolutely. Um, There are certainly people who are working on and certainly researching using certificate transparency type and binary transparency logs within the context of reproducible builds. I'm not sure of the current status of that, and I wouldn't want to say something silly and make myself look a bit stupid in this area. So, yes, it's certainly something that's on our radar, but unfortunately nothing I can give great light into in this conversation. That's okay. I'll I'll have a dig around and if I see anything, I'll put it in the show notes. What kind of uptake have you seen with the reproducible builds project? Have people adopted it and started using it in production? We unfortunately don't have any production-based systems uh, in the sense of a distribution that only lets you install reproducible software packages and things like that. There are um, distributions that are a little bit further along those lines. For example, GNU Geeks and NixOS, they offer a form of reproducible and repeatable sort of bottom-up based system administration philosophy, which can speak to reproducible builds, but it doesn't speak to the sort of consensus building that we are sort of speaking to and things like that. With regards to uptake of interest, very much so. Um, There's almost no one I've spoken to who isn't positive on the idea. I mean, once you 
describe the vulnerability and the fact that they're installing binaries that were built on machines that they don't necessarily trust or they wish they could trust more, let's put it that way. They get a little bit scared and they say, yes, I'm totally for what you're doing. Please keep it up, et cetera, et cetera. I guess one point of comparison is something like the Debian build process where, as I understand it, a dpkg package is signed. Once it's built, it has a checksum embedded into it, which says like the contents matches what was produced. And that is also has like a GPG signature on it to say that this hasn't been tampered with. So how wrong am I basically is, uh, are those things solving the same problem? And does the reproducible builds project take that a step further? The reproducible builds project absolutely takes that further. For example, if the Debian build system is compromised, and therefore it will be spewing out completely valid signatures of completely tainted and malicious code. So, I mean, it's no, no point getting a rubber stamp on a rootkit. You're basically installing a gold-tinted backdoor into your machine that's the GPC signature from the BuildD and the Debian archive is highly misleading because all that is saying is that this package came from the Debian build system. But if that Debian build system is compromised, well, great, you're still installing something a bit dodgy. So it absolutely goes further. And not only goes further, it tries to sort of eventually close this loop up. And so there is a, a complete bit of trust here. Does this also give you a path or does the reproducible builds process produce some kind of history or guarantee between a particular checkout of a source code and the end result. Absolutely. The whole promise of a reproducible build is that every time you build that particular checkout or version, you get the same result. So yes, it, it does make that promise quite explicitly. Yes, indeed. To follow along that lines, I've noticed recently there's been a number of these kinds of supply chain attacks on uh, scripting language package managers. So RubyGems and NPM have seen people's accounts be hacked or they've used very poor passwords and the malicious attacker has published a new version of the package under the name of the original author and people have actually done a bundle update or an npm install and picked up the new versions of those things and there was no record of that source code that went into that package ever existing on GitHub, for example. So a lot of tools like Dependabot will go, here's the diff for this version, and we'll link to GitHub and show you the diff there. But don't actually give you any confirmation that the package that was produced came from the from that source code on GitHub, which is then kind of like, oh, well, we trusted that diff. And turns out that diff was not right because there's no kind of audit trail between uh, the version control system and the package manager. Do you think the reproducible builds project could help with that kind of problem as well for things that weren't producing binaries but were packaging things up into archives or tables? Absolutely. Whilst it might be easier to talk about compilation processes and things like that, it really speaks to the integrity of the entire software supply chain. So um, I don't know whether it would work in the specifics of the example you're thinking of. But for example, if a number of people rebuilt the source code from the upstream GitHub repository, let's say it was that, and they came to a particular result, 
but that result was not the same as the one being published on the particular package archive, then that could be automatically flagged. It would at least be raised as something to be investigated. Um, and all this can be essentially automated. It wouldn't require someone to click a diff link, for example, and, and to work out what the difference was. Because every time you build a piece of software, you get the same result. If there is any difference whatsoever, you're going to end up with a different result and therefore a different checksum. This can quickly flag up any discrepancies between the published artifact and the source code that's in the upstream Git repository. But moreover, reproducible builds can help more generally in, in the entire software supply chain. Just last week, a backdoor was found in Webmin, the uh, popular web-based application to administer systems and remotely manage you know, Linux and Unix-based systems. The actual build tool chain, uh, I think in their Jenkins instance, was compromised. I believe on the upstream exploit page, they say something along the lines of that the exploit did not show up in any Git diffs and so not, would not have been found by an audit of the source code. So you could have spent countless millions looking for this particular backdoor. But because someone had compromised their Jenkins build system, they could insert the backdoor when it was being built. So people who downloaded from Webmin's homepage, they wouldn't be getting what was in the upstream repository that was essentially blessed by the upstream maintainers and was reviewed by the upstream maintainers. But rather, you'd be getting this extra version with optional extras, let's put it that way. And in this case, it was a backdoor. There's also a tool that I think came out of the reproducible build project called Diffoscope. Is Diffoscope designed for being part of that kind of supply chain security or is it more of a debugging tool for understanding why something isn't reproducible it's absolutely the latter 100 percent whether something is reproducible or not is entirely on a bit for bit identical means you can use a um, md5 sha1 sha256 whatever or you can just use the unix cmp tool which will quite literally check every byte is identical between two files so Diffoscope doesn't tell you whether a two pieces of software are identical or whether a particular tool is reproducible or not. It's a tool for when you do have two different versions of a package which you are trying to get to be reproducible. It's essentially a, a diff on steroids. It's our in-depth and content-aware diff utility that helps you diagnose and locate reproducibility issues in software. What would typically happen if, say, you generated two .deb files, if you generated them and they were meant to be the same, but they were not, if you ran the regular Unix diff command on them, the result would be you know, binary gibberish. The first reason would be because these archives are compressed. You may uncompress them first and then run diff on the result of the decompression process. Great, now it looks even better, but it's some sort of archive format like a zip or a tar file. And uh, very quickly you get to many, many levels deep, You know, maybe even five, six, seven levels deep before you get to the actual meaningful difference, which could be as simple as one word change in one tiny documentation file. But because all of these changes result in big changes throughout the rest of the file, for example, compression is a very good example of that. You change one byte in the original and the compressed thing will change dramatically. You really need a tool to do this for you, and it's just an incredibly labor-saving device for recursively unpacking and, and doing human-readable diffs on files. One particular feature of Diffoscope is that instead of just giving you hexadecimal dumps of change between files, if it knows about the contents of the files, though, for example, say archive format, like a zip, 
and the archive format has various bits of metadata or comments in the zip file itself. It will actually say what the comment is and will mark it as such rather than relying on you to be able to parse the specifics of that particular file format and things like that. And what do you see the future holding for this work, either in the reproducible builds project or with package management in general? What's coming up next in the future? Taking package management in general first, one thing that's certainly on people's radar with no obvious solution is how to meld a package manager like apt and dpackage within these newer ecosystems of NPM, PyPy, and things like that. Is one meant to just have two entirely separate systems? That doesn't sound very clean and things like that. And there's no obvious answers here. On reproducible builds, we'd obviously like to see the entirety of Debian becoming reproducible. We are certainly making steps to make the next stable version of Debian entirely reproducible and things like that. So one would be able to have a very good idea of the packages that you're installing are actually they actually correspond to the source code. And this will end up with a much more secure system and things like that. That can lead on to changes in the tools themselves. For example, currently when you install a package via apt that does not have a valid signature, you may get this package is unauthenticated. Do you wish to continue uh, with a default of no? And we have a whole bunch of open questions about what that means in a reproducible context. Would we want a similar prompt like that? Would it make sense to end users if you suddenly saw a prompt on your system saying, you are trying to install Nginx, but it's not reproducible. Do you still want to install it? What would the end user make of that? It's not really that obvious. I mean, ideally, we'd have an entirely reproducible system, but the user interfaces and the user experience is yet to be sort of worked out and teased out through that. Talking about the divide between system level and uh, language level package managers, it definitely feels like there's kind of a, a chasm between them. Often you'll see a Python package that assumes that you have something installed on your system and maybe in the readme somewhere it says like brew install libfubar, but that's about it. And you'll just get a very weird message either at install time or at runtime to be like... <laughs> Here's a stack trace of why we couldn't call out to this C library that we're assuming you're going to install. And often that C library will have a different name in different operating systems, which makes it quite tricky to knit those two things together. But it does feel like there's a big opportunity to be able to connect those dots together. And I don't think the solution is just to use Docker as kind of a big roll of duct tape to pile everything up together and then go there we go we got a working system just don't touch it again and it'll be fine i completely agree and there's a number of compromises you'll make both ways so i don't know what the ideal state really is because you are trading off a whole bunch of different things here and cross-platform and things like that is another thing as well whilst it might be perfect for a debian user a number of developers using these ecosystems and that you know they might be on an apple machine for example you're asking one to use you know, apt on there doesn't really work. So yeah, I agree. Thanks so much for coming on, Chris. This has been incredibly enlightening around the process of how packages flow through Debian, as well as the efforts to secure and improve the supply chain for all software in the future. Where can we find more about these projects? You can find more information about Debian at 
debian.org. You can find more about Reproducible Builds at reproducible-builds.org as well. Both of these projects are well um, represented on IRC networks and number of mailing lists as well. And where can we find more about you? My homepage is at chris-lamb.co.uk and I'm also on Twitter as well, which will be in the show notes. Yep, we'll get all the links for those in the show notes. Brilliant. Uh, This wraps up another episode of The Manifest and we will see you all again soon. Thanks very much for having me. Bye for now.